the JDF1 podcast. It's finally here, the start of the Formula One World Championship from Melbourne in Australia, the Australian Grand Prix. Here are my thoughts on the first race of the season, as well as the news behind the headlines. I'll also give you a sense of where I think the teams stand in terms of pace going into the rest of the season to come. Let's get to it. the screaming roar of a Ferrari V12 engine. Does it get any better than that? I don't think so. Unfortunately, we don't have that kind of engine in Formula One anymore, but as it's the best you could ever hear from Formula One, in my humble opinion, I put it on to the end of our little bit of intro music there. I'd like to say thank you for tuning in to my inaugural F1 podcast. My name is Jim Devereaux, as in JDF1. Thank you so much for visiting my website. This is a personal project of mine. I'd love to get into F1 journalism more full-time. This is the beginning. This is the starting point for me. So if you like my website, please uh, do follow it. Um, you can subscribe via email to my latest articles that I'll be writing about F1 throughout the season. And if you'd like to send me a message direct, you can do so at me at jdf1.tv. That's me at jdf1.tv. Okay, that's all the plugs out of the way. Let's get on and talk about the Australian Grand Prix, uh, the first race in the 2018 FIA Formula One World Championship. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? First of all, before we talk about what actually happened and the stories behind the headlines, was it a good race to watch? I think that's how I'm going to start all of these race reviews. We'll just have a little brief moment where if, just in case you didn't fancy getting up at three or six or five or whatever the time was in the morning to watch the race. Uh, I'm just going to give you a sense of whether I thought it was a good race to watch or you could, you know, catch the highlights or just skip altogether. Well, you've got to give it a thumbs up because it is the first race of the season. It's always the most exciting. We've seen previews of the cars in testing and we're always wondering, you know, is the competitive order going to change? Are we going to see a more of a fight brought to the ever-dominant Mercedes in this V6 hybrid era. So yes, I have to give it a thumbs up for that reason. And in terms of the race itself, it wasn't an exciting race. I'd say it was an engrossing race for various reasons. Now, it wasn't exciting because there was very little overtaking. Now, I'm going to talk about more of that later, which is one of my big points from my intro I did. Overtaking is a big problem in Formula One, as we know, but it's going to be particularly bad this year. But Aside from that, it was an engrossing race because there was a lot of close wheel-to-wheel -wheel action, just not a lot of actual overtaking. Cars were following each other very closely, thanks partly to uh, the addition of a third DRS, or Drag Reduction System Zone, by the FIA for Melbourne at, for the very first time, which was indeed a very good idea but it didn't actually lead to much overtaking, but we did have cars in close proximity, and we had a lot of cars very similar on pace. And speaking of pace, the car that was not the fastest did in fact win, which is always a bit of a bonus when you're thinking about watching a race. Um, in case you didn't know, Sebastian Vettel uh, won the race in the Ferrari, a car which did not look like the fastest from testing. In fact, to a lot of people, not me, I must say. If you look at my predictions, I put them second fastest. But a lot of people felt the Red Bull were, in fact, second fastest from testing. So it was an, an unusual result as well. And there were, there were controversies, there were things that happened in the race. So if you haven't watched it yet, 
I give a thumbs up to say yes, it's worth catching a replay. You don't need to watch the whole race, but watching highlights is perfectly acceptable and I wouldn't consider it a waste of time. So what made the race interesting beyond the fact that the favourites did not win? That favourite, in fact, would be none other than Lewis Hamilton, the veritable king of Mercedes GP. And, uh, well, what can we say about Lewis? You have to feel for Lewis Hamilton after this race because he was absolutely dominant throughout the whole weekend in Melbourne. Uh, and yeah, just before we move on, Melbourne's gorgeous venue. It's a beautiful city, Albert Park, sort of part street circuit, temporary sort of track. Uh, it's very bumpy. It's uh, The walls are very close in. It's a very challenging track, but it's also a track where if you're an aggressive driver, if you've got that bit of edge of natural talent, you really can. And of course, if you're very brave, you can make a big difference. And boy, did we see that difference made by Lewis Hamilton this weekend. He was very quick in Friday practice. In fact, he topped both Friday practice sessions. And then in qualifying, we had a brief moment, just a brief moment where we had three different teams separated by six hundredths of a second after their first runs in Q3. And we were all thinking, oh, wow, this is it. This is what we want to see. We've got Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull, three different teams, three different engine manufacturers, and they're all within the tiniest fraction of a second. This could be the Formula One season we've been waiting for, this whole hybrid era where Renault have finally caught up and Ferrari have got their act together and now we can see these cars all battling it out throughout season long. Well, that's what we thought after the first run in Q3, but then Lewis Hamilton bolted on a fresh set of tyres and he went out again and what did he do? Well, he put himself on pole position by nearly seven-tenths of a second to Kimi Raikkonen second, Sebastian Vettel third, and we all thought, wow, okay. This is, well, this is Mercedes. This is what we got used to. This is what we would expect, unfortunately. Unless you're a big Mercedes fan or if you work for Mercedes, you're going to be very happy about this. But if you're a fan like me, you're going to think, oh, here we go. Another season of domination. But it's not that simple. Yes, on paper, it looks as if the Mercedes, from that evidence of qualifying, have a huge pace advantage over the rest. But we are not taking into account here the Lewis Hamilton factor. I would wager that Lewis Hamilton is one of, if not the best driver of all time in Formula One at extracting the maximum potential of a car over a single lap. He has that talent beyond anyone else on the grid, I'm happy to say. I don't think he's the most complete driver, but he has the best single lap pace. And boy, did he really get on it. He had a car that was in the right, the right place. He'd set it up beautifully and it was working beautifully as we'd expect of Mercedes. And he got the tires up to a fantastic, correct temperature. In fact, the Mercedes has been struggling with a bit of rear temperatures as the other teams have as well with the ultra soft tire that they use in qualifying three in Melbourne going off a bit. So in fact, he had a bit of an extra slowdown before his last Q3 run, which is what I read. Um, and uh, that actually did help, funnily enough, him keeping the, the rear tires in the right temperature through his last qualifying three lap, which was a big factor in him getting that extra lap time. But of course, it was also a huge amount of talent from Lewis Hamilton. We did see some comments from Sebastian Vettel talking about uh, how he felt that uh, Mercedes had turned up the party mode for the end of Q3. And it certainly looked that way when you looked at the times. But in fact, it turns out we're looking, out at, G looking at GPS data that the teams can monitor each other on, that the Ferrari was actually faster down the straights in Q3 than Mercedes by about three tenths of a second. So what that tells us, what does it tell us? Well, the Mercedes was much faster through the corners. That's partly because the car 
has probably got better downforce at this point. It's got more usable downforce. The Ferrari is still a, a work in progress with its new concept. But it tells us that what happened was that Lewis took so much more speed through the corners. Apparently, he took anything up to about 10 to 15 kilometers an hour more speed through the first turn than he did on his previous Q3 lap. So it goes to show that he was really on it and he had the tires in the right place and it wasn't just to do with headline engine power. So that is a good thing about qualifying and that helps us to believe, that gives us some hope going forward that it isn't all about uh, engine power in Q3 and Mercedes just turning up the wick to go beyond anyone else. Uh, we all know they've got good engine maps and good engine modes, but what it tells us simply is that that lap was more than anything down to Lewis Hamilton's brilliance. The other major headlines from qualifying were the fact that the Haas cars were so fast. We saw a glimpse of this in testing, and I think, to be honest, the likes of Renault and McLaren were rather hoping that it would not be true. That they simply would not be as fast as they seemed to indicate from testing. Well, good news for the American team, they are as quick as they looked in testing. And in what is being described as a bit of a Ferrari clone, that car, depending on who you speak to. Some people are quite adamant that it's not a Ferrari clone. Others, you know, including myself, think there's a lot borrowed from the 2017 Ferrari F1 car. It looks very similar on the outside in terms of the diffuser, in terms of the side pod inlets and the front wing. But, you know, I'm not gonna blame Haas if that is the case. I'm not gonna criticize them. They are working within the rules. They have a very tight technical partnership with Ferrari, so why not? Ferrari had an excellent car last year that they really ought to have once more than they did with. They probably should have won the world championship if they'd taken advantage of Mercedes self-inflicted problems with their particular package and not being able to understand it, as well as uh, a ban on uh, certain suspension systems which uh, hurt Mercedes at the beginning of last season. But that's nothing to take away from Haas. Haas are the real deal. They're super fast. They're very happy. But of course, the happiness did not last very long, as we'll find out in a few minutes when we talk more about how the race unfolded. Max Verstappen was in among them, and but unfortunately, Daniel Ricciardo, the home hero at Australia, was in fact relegated by a three grid place penalty, which relegated him towards the back of the top 10 to start the race. Now, I feel quite strongly about this. I think he was harshly done by. Unfortunately, he was the victim of the rules as they're written in terms of the what the stewards applied. In fact, he's not the victim of the way the rules are written because the rules are written in such a way as to actually give a five place grid penalty for what he did. What did he do? Well, he was on his hot lap uh, in free practice, uh, trying to see how quick he could go, you know, as an indicator, as a benchmark, a low fuel run, and a red flag came out. And when a red flag comes out to stop the session, and this was because of a timing line that would come loose on the uh, start-finish straight, by the way, it was no crash or anything, um, you have to slow down by a sufficient amount. You have to slow right down to a very slow speed and make your way back to the pits. Unfortunately, Danny Rick, although he did slow down a lot, didn't quite slow down enough in terms of the the line that they that they dictate that this is how slow you must be. So they were bound by the laws, by the rule book, to give him a five place grip penalty for contravening this regulation. Uh, it's in the name of safety, as so many things are in the name of safety today in Formula One, as we'll get on to with the halo in a bit. Um, but I still think it was a little excessive because if you actually looked at the situation that occurred, he was nowhere near any other cars. The type of the red flag uh, meant that there was no danger. 
obviously he wouldn't have known that of course but he, you know he did slow down a lot that's the point i think it was difficult but they did apologize and they tried to uh, to be fair to the stewards they tried to to soften the blow by making it only a three place grip penalty but again it's 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 emblematic of the modern formula 1 it's very much bound by a very complex rule book uh, which for better or for worse, is how it is. So there we are. So that's why Daniel Ricciardo started down, I believe, in eighth place for the Grand Prix. So going into the race, we had, you know, we had an interesting grid. It was pretty much as, as testing predicted. McLaren were disappointed, I think it has to be said, as they didn't even make it into Q3, which I think they were quite surprised by. But for McLaren fans out there, including myself, I don't think it's time to panic quite yet. Uh, partly because they had a good race result, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, but also because that car has been detuned to some degree to deal with persistent reliability issues that are still going on from testing. In free practice one, the very first practice session of the season, McLaren were marooned in the pit, in their pit box, in the in the pit lane, whichever way you want to put it, uh, with. Again, problems with the Renault exhaust system and overheating, which they thought they'd fixed from all the issues they had with that in testing. Uh, so they've clearly put in place some extra temporary measures and detuned various things in order to avoid overheating and maintain reliability, which was, of course, the smart thing to do. And uh, But it did limit McLaren's uh, ultimate pace, I believe, and uh, they ended up 10th and 11th lining up on the grid. Ahead of them, the Renaults, the, uh, the works team, Carlos Sainz Jr., and Nico Hulkenberg both looked very good in the new Works Renault team, but again, slower than the Haas. This is a team with only just over 200 people working for them, so you have to give huge credit to Haas for doing a fantastic job with their car. Right, but let's get on to the race itself. And, well, the lights went out. It was a pretty standard start, very neat and tidy into Turn 1. We didn't see any accidents. We often see a bit of you know, bumping of cars and what have you going into turn one or two and down to turn three. The, t the track is very tight. The barriers are very close and it would have, you know, thrown some interest into the mix. The much talked about rain that might have affected the race never turned up. In fact, it was quite a pleasant day in Melbourne. So uh, that didn't happen. But uh, Kimi Raikkonen briefly uh, flirted with overtaking Lewis Hamilton into turn one, but it didn't quite happen. And we saw a pattern emerge in the first stint where Lewis Hamilton got away not by very much though he was keeping a lead of about two to three seconds over Kimi Raikkonen in second who has to be said was the more impressive Ferrari driver over the weekend in Melbourne Seb seemed to be struggling more with the car balance than Kimi maybe just the vagaries of the current Ferrari package suit Kimi's driving style a bit better who knows but Kimi was certainly doing better than Seb Seb being a few seconds behind Kimi in third place but the spanner in the works for Red Bull was the fact that Kevin Magnussen in the fast Haas got ahead of Max Verstappen and this is where some of the problems with the race and the quality of the race started to show themselves for the very first time we had a situation where the Red Bull which was clearly a faster car over a single lap, could not get past the Haas at all, even though Max Verstappen was in DRS range and benefiting from three DRS zones, he could not get past, and uh, in his efforts to uh, keep up with the Haas, and in fact, we read that uh, he did uh, damage his car going over the curbs around turn, the fast turn 11 and 12 before he had a spin at turn one. He did a bit of a 360, lost a lot of time, and really overcooked his tyres, and that was 
a big problem for Red Bull. It's worth mentioning the Red Bull actually started the race on the super soft tyre. Both drivers, they both used them in Q2 so that they would start the race on those tyres. That's how it works. The fastest time you set in Q2, you start on that set of tyre. So they were clearly going for a contrary strategy to try and force something different to happen in the race as everyone else in Q3 started the race on the ultra soft tyre, planning to do one stop onto the soft tyre. Speaking of one stop, Pirelli seemed to have, on the evidence of this race, failed in their quest to force two stops as the kind of norm for a Formula One race. They've made all of their compounds softer for this year. They've changed the uh, the constitution, particularly of the front uh, the front tyres, um, in order to uh, try and change the range, the operating range, and to uh, increase the degradation as they're softer. And they've introduced, of course, the hyper soft tyre, which is the uh, very, very, very soft tyre, which has a pink sidewall. And uh, they brought the ultra soft, the super soft, and the soft tyre to this race. But uh, you know what? On the evidence of the race, it was only one stop. People only needed one stop. The ultra soft tyres lasted a good 25 laps, at least, maybe 30. They need to go softer. Pirelli, you need to go softer. So the first stint played out pretty much as you'd expect. Uh, Lewis Hamilton maintained about a three and a half second gap to Kimi Raikkonen, but it was quite tit for tat. You know, it didn't look as if Lewis was just sandbagging. It very much came across that Kimi Raikkonen in the Ferrari had the ability to keep up with him. When Lewis would set a fastest lap, Kimi would come out with a fastest lap. They were pegging the gap. Lewis wasn't disappearing into the distances, you know, as we've seen so often in recent Grand Prix. The Ferrari was, on race pace at least, capable of hanging with the Mercedes. Having said that, I think Mercedes were being quite bullish about their strategy and feeling like this is the gap that we need and not trying to go beyond that because of course one of the big changes for Formula 1 in 2018 is the restriction of three engines to last you per season. Now, not a very popular uh, new rule, it has to be said. I'm not a big fan. There may be some unforeseen benefits of having three engines, which I may discuss in an article at a future time. But the problem with introducing an endurance element to what is effectively closer to a sprint formula in Grand Prix racing, I think just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. If you want to have an endurance engine for Le Mans, of course you've got to have an engine that lasts 24 hours. That makes perfect sense. In a Grand Prix, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's all about cost saving, and yes, having three engines is saving customer teams money, as they only have to buy three engines instead of four. But having said that, having to make three engines last a good seven odd Grand Prix each is a very difficult ask indeed. Which, of course, impacts performance and uh, encourages the teams to be even more conservative than they were before about how they run their engines and uh, how much they use, how much life they take out of them per race, which is not what we want to see as fans. We want to see cars really going for it. We don't want to see restrictions based on uh, how much mileage a part has to, uh, has to do or how much uh, fuel you need to save. These are all pointless restrictions on the quality of the product and the end product is the quality of the race. And if you don't have a good end product, then you are going to turn people off from watching the racing. And this is obviously a big problem potentially for Formula One in the long term, if it continues in the long term. But anyway, this is the situation. Three engines that have to last the entire Formula One season, and that includes all of the components, the internal components. That's the internal combustion engine, that's the turbo, that's the 
the MGUK, the uh, energy recovery of kinetic energy, and the MGUH, which is recovering heat. Yes, it's all of those components together, they will have to last uh, an individual one for each. They will have to last seven races. Well, this is the modern Formula One for you. Anyway, back to the race. And what we had, well, we had going into the first pit stops, we had the order that I've just described. Kimi Raikkonen attempted the undercut. What is the undercut, you say? Well, the undercut is when you come into the pits earlier than you suspect your competition that you're fighting with in the race to come in. Uh, in order to benefit from the fresh tyres that you'll put, in, put on in the pit stop and therefore go faster when you come out on track, which means that hopefully if you've managed to stop a lap or two before they have, then you will have closed the gap to the car in front. That is the plan. Kimi Raikkonen attempted it in the Ferrari, but Mercedes did the sensible thing and brought Lewis Hamilton in the very next lap in order to cover off that attempt. However, as Sebastian Vettel was running third, and of course he did not get dibs on first pit stop, as Kimi Raikkonen did because he was ahead of Seb, the, the leading driver tends to get preference on best strategy, Sebastian Vettel was on the, the inferior strategy, which was a sort of a leave him out and hope and see what happens. Now, of course, Sebastian Vettel is, in my opinion, not that I believe in such things, but in my opinion, quite a lucky driver if you look at his, the history of his racing. Nothing against Seb, he's one of the greatest there is. But he has had some good fortune in his F1 career, I think it's fair to say. And on this day, he had tremendous good fortune because the race was defined by what happened to both Haas drivers, which was the gravest misfortune. It has to be said, Haas came in to make their pit stops. They were looking very good. They were, they were running fourth and fifth in the race, which was fantastic. On to score a huge haul of points and to start the season the best possible way. Well, first of all, Kevin Magnussen came in to uh, change his tyres, came out on track, but then stopped not long after. And it soon became clear there had been a problem in the pit stop and one of the wheels had not been attached correctly. Horrible. It can happen. It does happen in Formula One. Uh, very sad, indeed, that that happened. But then literally one or two laps later, I can't remember if it was one or two laps, um, Romain Grosjean came in for his pit stop. So he thought, right, well, it went wrong the first time, but, you know, it's, it never happens again, you know, in the same race. The team are not going to make the same mistake. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, whether it was a problem with the hydraulic systems, uh, the pressured air systems, I should say, uh, in the wheel guns, or it was just uh, a lack of practice, is what Gunter Steiner, the Haas team principal, has actually said, uh, led to the second incident of the same thing happening, a wheel not being attached properly or being cross-threaded, in fact, is what has been said. And that led Roman Grosjean to have to stop out on track because it's very dangerous, obviously, to try and drive with a loose wheel and you are mandated to stop as soon as you realise that has occurred. And this led to Roman Grosjean stopping on track. Tra absolutely tragic for the Haas team. You really have to feel for them. But if there is a silver lining, they've got a great car. They've got a great car in Australia. It's likely to still be a good car. A very good car, in fact, when we get to Bahrain a couple of weeks from now. But this, because of where Roman Grosjean stopped on track, just the inside of turn two, uh, it was a dangerous position, so it brought out the virtual safety car. The virtual safety car, in case you don't know, is there to neutralize the race. It gives you a, a lap time delta on your dashboard as a driver that you have to drive to. It's a slow time and everyone has to drive to the same delta. So the idea is that it maintains the same gap between all the cars. 
you bring out a, a full-on actual safety car, then all the cars bunch up behind the safety car. A virtual safety car, everyone drives around at a slow speed. The same speed keeps everyone's distances the same. That is only the case if you don't come into the pits, of course, at the right moment. And that's exactly what Sebastian Vettel did. He came into the pits to change his tyres, having been left out, as I just said uh, a couple of minutes ago, by Ferrari to try a contrary strategy or to be there to capitalise on, on the situation that actually occurred, the virtual safety car. Now, Mercedes were quite confident that they would comfortably still come out ahead of Sebastian if he came in at that time. They thought they had time, a few seconds in hand um, by the time Lewis Hamilton could come back round to the main pit straight and, and should be out ahead. Uh, unfortunately, they were wrong in their calculations. Well, I say unfortunately. Unfortunately for them. Fortunately, perhaps for us and for Ferrari fans, uh, they were wrong. Uh, Lewis Hamilton hadn't built a big enough gap before the virtual safety car and Sebastian Vettel managed to come out just ahead of Lewis Hamilton. And given the problems that I've already alluded to with overtaking at this race, it really was game, set and match at that point as there was not going to be another pit stop because the tyres were going to last plenty. You know, those soft tyres probably could have done two race distances, quite frankly. Um, so that's really what turned the race on its head. This was also of great benefit to McLaren, uh, specifically Fernando Alonso, the mighty Alonso, who was, as ever, driving a very good race, a very efficient race. He was right up there and he made the most of his opportunities. And he managed to emerge stopping under the virtual safety car a tenth of a second ahead of Max Verstappen. Max actually did overtake Alonso into the first corner, but it was made clear by race control that he would have to give the place back. And after some wild gesticulations towards Alonso to say, come on, come back by, come back by, um, Alonso did in fact take the place back. And even though after the uh, safety car period ended, the Red Bull was clearly a lot faster again because of the aforementioned problems with overtaking Verstappen was able to do absolutely nothing about getting past Alonso and it secured a fifth place for McLaren. So an excellent result for McLaren. Uh, they said, Alonso said before the race they were going to get a huge haul of points. Maybe not huge, a big haul of points. And he was right. Uh, pretty lucky, like Sebastian, but he was pretty lucky. So the rest of the race played out very much like the first part. There was some exciting moments when Lewis Hamilton just said to his, actually announced to his team rather than uh, uh, asking permission. He said, I'm going for it. He said, I'm going for it. You know, can I, can I attack? He said, yeah, can I attack? Because again, you know, you might think, why didn't he attack him from the off? Well, because Formula One cars are, are run like bureaucracies. There, there's so many procedures that need to be gone through to make sure that you haven't used up too much fuel, that the tyres are in the right place, that you don't overcook the engine, which is even more a big problem this year as we've just been discussing. So he did finally go for it. He attacked Sebastian Vettel. He got quite close, but then he made a mistake into, I believe, turn nine at, uh, at Melbourne and went a bit wide and that put him two and a half seconds behind. And after that, it really was pretty much game over. He came back again towards the last few laps and had a bit of another go, but he'd been overheating his engine. He'd been overcooking it. And of course it was decided that it wouldn't be worth trying. It wouldn't be worth risking the engine to try and steal uh, the win, which is very sensible. Very sensible, Lewis Hamilton, you know. Looking to the future, it's a long season, 21 races. This is the very first one. Take a solid second place at this point. And he was absolutely gutted after the race. Of course he was, because um, he'd driven 
fantastically throughout the whole weekend. But fortunately for us, the whole virtual safety car scenario did make the race a lot more interesting to watch. Other notable uh, occurrences in the race was the uh, the unfortunately very nauseous Carlos Sainz Jr. Um, I haven't heard this one before, actually. He complained of nausea over the radio because apparently uh, all the drivers have a drinks bottle in the car and they have a straw that goes through the helmet into the mouth so they can take a drink while they're driving, which is very sensible. But apparently the water bottle had been... The way it had been set up, he was getting lots of water just pouring into his mouth and uh, he got his stomach very full of fluid and particularly under the safety car and uh and later on in the race he had a very full stomach apparently which was uh making him feel very sick when he was going around the corners so um that was an interesting one uh poor old carlos um he managed to maintain his place at the uh the back end of the points he wasn't quite passed by sergio perez towards the end in the force india so that was uh it was an okay result, ultimately, in the end. He was okay. I don't think he actually threw up in his helmet. They might not have told us if he did, but uh, I'd like to think he didn't. So, um, sorry, Carlos. Sorry you felt sick there. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe some kind of valve or something on the on the water bottle uh, tube would be useful, as uh, apparently he's particularly sensitive to having too much fluid in his stomach um, and driving, a bit like being seasick or something. So, yeah, so uh, that was a, a curious thing that happened in the race. Another unwelcome but very familiar occurrence was a Honda engine failure. It was the only engine failure in the race, and it was a Honda. Uh, Pierre Gasly in the Toro Rosso, very early in the race, in fact, I think it was around the 10 lap mark, I can't remember exactly. Um, the Honda engine just shut off, just stopped working. He had to stop out on track, and uh, that's, yeah, it's a bit of a blow. It is a blow for Honda because they hadn't had any failures in testing at all. They looked like they sort of moved on from this point. But I did allude in my in my season preview that, uh, you know, it's all well and good at Toro Rosso until Hon- the Honda engines start to fail again if they do. And, of course, this has happened in the very first race. And it's, again, particularly pertinent in 2018 because there are supposed to be three engines to last you the whole season. To be fair, I imagine Honda were always planning to take strategic upgrades to their engine anyway and to take engine penalties as a result of changing the engine uh, before seven races but having said that you really don't want your first engine to fail in the very first race that's just never intentional and uh, still clearly a lot of work to do for the Japanese company there Valtteri Bottas I almost forgot to talk about Valtteri Bottas um, which is not a good thing because he was Unfortunately, pretty anonymous in the picture for this Grand Prix. The man who's in the other Mercedes, the other car, the other seat of the car, rather, that everybody in Formula One, their right mind, other than Lewis Hamilton, as he's already there, would want to be in. Uh, But unfortunately for Bartas, he really had a weekend to forget. Of course, he had his unfortunate crash in qualifying, it has to be said. He was a little bit unlucky. He took a bit... Too much curb into turn one, went a bit wide in turn two, and as it had been raining earlier in that day, he just touched the rear of his left tyre, rear left tyre, onto the grass, and it under-rotated at that rear left tyre. And of course, when you've got four tyres all rotating in the same speed and direction, then you under-rotate one of them, it's going to, particularly a rear tyre, it's going to spin the car, and that's exactly what happened. And at that point, he was a passenger, and he went back first into the wall at turn two. 
not a major accident. Obviously, he was fine afterwards, but of course, his his ego and even more importantly, his confidence will have been bruised quite substantially. I think there's a huge spotlight on Valtteri Bottas this year. He is in what is obviously considered to be the fastest car, along with potentially the fastest driver as his teammate. But here's the thing: he's not there to beat Lewis Hamilton. He is there to help Mercedes win the Constructors' Championship. Lewis's job is to win the drivers' title. Mercedes' job. Valtteri Bottas' job is to win the Constructors' Championship. And based on his demeanour, based on his approach, and based on his results from the very first Grand Prix, that will be exactly the opposite of what Mercedes wanted him to do. He's on a one-year contract. There are other drivers who who are very interested in that seat, including Daniel Ricciardo, who's out of contract at Red Bull at the end of this year. So he really does need to step it up and he needs to be getting regular podiums and picking up the odd win when Lewis Hamilton isn't capable of picking up the win, whether that's due to having an off weekend, as he's sometimes prone to have, or if he runs into any issues, technical issues, etc. himself. So Valtteri Bottas, not a good start at all to the 2018 Formula One World Championship season. He needs to put that whole race out of his mind. He needs to start afresh in Bahrain and I think the best advice I would give to him is to not worry about beating Lewis Hamilton. He needs to just extract the very best of himself, compare himself to himself, and say, I need to get the best out of this car each and every weekend and whenever I end up, as long as I am getting big, big points finishes, lots of podiums for Mercedes, then that should be enough for at least for me to be at least in contention to keep my seat at the end of the year. We all know Bottas is a very good driver, but uh, yes, he won't have done himself any favours whatsoever after uh, the problems he suffered uh, in the Australian Grand Prix. In the race itself, he had to take a gearbox penalty. He started back in about 15th place, and he didn't make a huge amount of progress. Again, this goes back to the problem that we're going to talk about in a moment about Formula 1 in 2018. He did not make much progress through the year field despite having the fastest car on track and uh, he got some good points in the end because he, he did also benefit from the virtual safety car but um, you know it was it was one or two points it's not it's not what you'd expect of another Mercedes car so the Australian Grand Prix who was the driver of the weekend well I'm not going to say the driver on the day I'm going to say the driver of the weekend that's the way I'm going to do things here at GDF1 uh, I would give it to Lewis Hamilton. I think you have to give it to Lewis Hamilton. Not only because he was just on it the whole time. He did everything he needed to do at every in every given session. He really ticked all the boxes. And he had an absolutely superb, sublime qualifying lap. I think that seven-tenths of a second advantage that he had over Kimi Raikkonen in Q3 was down to partly having his tyres in a better place than they had been in his previous runs. I think it was partly that uh, the Ferraris, particularly uh, Sebastian Vettel, didn't have a great lap. He made a mistake at turn 13, as did Max Verstappen at the same corner. But the biggest factor being it's Lewis Hamilton. And when he's on it, when he's inspired and at a track like uh, Melbourne, where you can really make a difference attacking those corners, uh, that was the majority, I think, of that seven-tenths of a second gap. So amazing lap from Lewis. Along with, he drove a flawless race. He drove it exactly as he should have driven it. Um, and when he got behind, he really did try to uh, attack and get, and get back into first place as best he could. So, yeah, um, a, basically a flawless performance from Lewis, but he didn't manage to win, and that was entirely beyond his control. It was just bad luck, really bad luck. 
So the best driver of the weekend, I think you have to give to Lewis Hamilton. In terms of the worst driver of the weekend, well, I'd say it's a tale of two Mercedes because I would have to say the worst driver was Valtteri Bottas for all the issues that I just mentioned. Um, not a good way to start the season. He start he ended last season so well. And it just goes to show the psychology is so important in sport. You know, when you're not... When you know you're not in with a chance of winning the championship, the pressure's off and you relax a bit. And then when you're relaxed a bit more, you end up producing your best work is what often happens. So I think Valtteri needs to find a way to... Uh, to smooth over those uh, those worries and those frustrations and those, oh my God, I must match Lewis Hamilton at all costs. You need to not think in that way, in my opinion. So there we are. Best of the weekend, Lewis Hamilton. Worst of the weekend, Valtteri Bottas. So final thoughts on the competitive order as we can glean from the very first race. Well, as... Uh, someone in Formula 1 said the other day I think it might have been Lewis Hamilton again uh, you do have to wait a good four races to get a true sense of the competitive order because we've got to see the cars running on a variety of different racetracks Melbourne of course is a quite an unusual track, it is not representative of the majority of Grand Prix circuits that the F1 Canada visits during the year so Melbourne often throws up some oddities of results. Some teams go particularly well there and then will struggle at a more traditional circuit. Next up is Bahrain. And again, Bahrain isn't entirely typical either. It's very high temperature, it's very dusty, and the again, the track layout isn't a sort of as typical as somewhere like China would be when we'll be visiting after that, where that will be more of a, a realistic uh, sense of what we're going to see during the season. So, having said all that... Where do we stand competitive order-wise? I think on race pace, I think we're looking at quite a close fight between the top three teams. I think Mercedes, in a sense, all the three top teams weren't able to properly show what they could do. Maybe Ferrari more so than others. Maybe Ferrari ultimately were a bit flattered. Um, they've clearly got some good fundamental pace in the car, but they're struggling to get the balance quite right and uh, to make sense of some of the new philosophies that they've... Uh, that they have pursued with this year's car, a higher rake, a longer wheelbase, um, a different front wing philosophy, all things that they, you know, ideas they borrowed from various other teams to try and get the best of all worlds. Uh, Ferrari still have got work to do. Red Bull, I think, had the most disappointing weekend because they truly weren't able to show what they could have done. Um, it is a power-dependent circuit, uh, Melbourne. There are not many fast corners, so Red Bull, who have probably got the best chassis, uh, weren't able to show off their, their true pace and they, of course, because they're overtaking problems they did get stuck behind slower cars for most of the race as well as the uh, issue with Daniel Carlo having qualifying really hampering his race as well so in terms of race pace I think even though Mercedes probably still have a bit of an edge not not a great not a great big edge a little edge just a, a sliver they've still got an edge but it's those top three teams Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull all very close together in race pace which is exciting in terms of the year ahead in terms of qualifying pace I think we still need to see uh, what else can happen I think the result of that first qualifying with Lewis Hamilton's stunning qualifying lap was not representative of what we're likely to see I think it will be a bit closer than that but again Mercedes having a little bit of an edge behind the top three Again, Haas look like they are the team to beat. Whether they'll stay there long, I'm not sure. I think they will in the opening rounds, but I think by the time we get to the European season, I think we'll see the likes of Renault and McLaren uh, hot on their heels. 
we hear a lot of bullishness from McLaren have done in recent seasons, last couple of years, about how good their chassis is and if only they had more power. They've got more power this year, as evidenced by uh, Fernando Alonso and his uh, his good race results and saying on the radio at the end, you know, finally we can fight. The long winter is over, we can fight again. That car clearly, as I said earlier, has, is being compromised by some exhaust issues and some installation issues, having switched to the Renault engine package so late last season. So I think there's a lot more to come from McLaren. And uh, Renault, I think there is definitely more to come there as well. Whether they'll be able to keep pace with McLaren, I, th- I suspect, this is just a personal suspicion, I suspect there's more fundamental pace in the McLaren than the Renault at this moment in time. It's just McLaren haven't been able to unleash it yet. But we are seeing a very tight battle uh, at that sharp end of the midfield. In terms of the rest, well, it's very competitive uh, down the field. I think Force India will feel disappointed after after Australia. I certainly feel a bit disappointed. I expected them to be further up than they were. They uh, they have clearly not got as much pace in their initial packaging of the car, their initial aero package they brought to Australia, which was really their first proper aero package of 2018, as in testing they were running effectively a 2017 spec with the 2018 mechanical platform. So I think they expected a lot more. So I think Force India will be disappointed about where they are, but they're very much in the mix. And if they can keep enough money flowing through that team, we know they've got the sort of engineers to uh, to help them get out of a hole, that's for sure. Toro Rosso will also be disappointed because they had a very positive winter, but I think some of the realities of the still inherent drawbacks of the Honda engine will be coming back to bite. That lack of uh, top top end speed down the straights will clearly be hurting Toro Rosso. And of course, there's clearly some reliability issues but that's a long-term project Williams well I didn't talk about them in the race review uh, but yes Williams had a poor race as expected they were pretty far towards the back the head issues Sergio Sorokin got very unlucky uh, he retired very early uh, in what was suspected to be a plastic bag that got stuck in his brake duct which if is true if it is true is very very sad indeed um, makes it clear to all of us that we need to get use get rid of these single-use plastics more more and more so, absolutely, uh, without getting political here. Uh, but the car clearly is troublesome. I don't want to say it lacks pace because it's. I'm not sure how much pace is in the Williams. I think it lacks drivability right now. It's clearly struggling on corner entry consistency. And of course, they've got the most inexperienced driver lineup on the grid. So it's going to be a struggle for Lance Stroll and for Sergei Sorokin to get the best out of that car anytime soon. Hopefully, their engineering excellence and the influence of Paddy Lowe will certainly help that. And of course, hopefully, Robert Kubica in the background will certainly steer them in the right direction. But Williams, yes, I think they're going to be... They're going to be scrapping it out with Toro Rosso at the back of the midfield chase at this point in time, I believe. And of course, Sauber had a slightly better race than expected. Charles Leclerc finished 13th. He had a good race. So, you know, he, he'll, that'll be a, that's a great start for his career. And, of course, he's desperate to get into the Ferrari for next year, being the Ferrari protege that he is. And, uh, you know, he's an exciting talent to keep an eye on. So that's my rough idea of where we are. So in terms of predictions of pace, it's very much in line with what most people were predicting at this point in time. I think if there were any surprises, it was that McLaren weren't quite as quick as we thought they would be in one, certainly in over one lap. But I think, like I said, that's to do with not unlocking a full amount of beans in that car due to installation and uh, packaging issues. 
And of course, I think uh, Force India a little bit slower than we all expected, uh, which, again, it was a bit of an unknown for the team. And I really hope it's not the start of a big slide because they are an excellent team and uh, they certainly deserve to be towards the sharp end of the midfield. That's for sure. Well, there you are. That is the end of my first podcast here at JDF1. I hope you enjoyed my review of the Australian Grand Prix. If you'd like to get more updates from me and see more articles I'm writing about Formula One and news and opinion and all sorts of things, please come and visit jdf1.tv. You can find me on Twitter, find me on Facebook. Please share it with your friends. Like I've said at the beginning of this podcast, this is a new project for me. And if you do enjoy listening to me, then please, please do like and subscribe. I'd much appreciate it. But until the Bahrain Grand Prix, until I see you next time, do take care.